Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week we welcome back Randy Roberts, Distinguished Professor of History at Purdue University. We are discussing his latest book, A Team for America, The Army-Navy Game That Rallied a Nation, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in 2011. Two of the most celebrated names in the history of American college football are Glenn Davis and Doc Blanchard. In their three years playing together for the U.S. Military Academy, the only blemish on their team's record was a scoreless tie in 1946 with eventual national champion Notre Dame. The other 27 games from 1944 to 1946 were all victories by a combined score of 1,112 points to 161. Davis and Blanchard accounted for well over half of those offensive points, together scoring 97 touchdowns over their careers, a record that stood for 59 years. Davis, whose speed brought him the nickname Mr. Outside, still holds the college football record for most yards gained per carry in a single season and over a career. He earned the Heisman Trophy in 1945, while his teammate Blanchard, whose power earned him the nickname Mr. Inside, received the award the following season. Davis and Blanchard, along with their legendary coach Red Blake, are the main characters in Randy Roberts' history of the great army teams of the war years. For troops in Europe and the Pacific, and sports fans on the home front, Army's success on the football field was heartening, especially in the fall of 1944, when the country was tiring of war. In his writing, Randy has an eye for the colorful, the dramatic, and the humorous, and he conveys both the action on the gridiron and the mood of the times. And as we learned a few months ago when I interviewed him about his biography of Joe Lewis, Randy loves to talk about sports and history. So let's turn to the interview. It's a pleasure to have Randy Roberts as a returning guest on New Books and Sports. Randy, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be back. So, of course, the last time we visited, we were talking about your biography of Joe Lewis, and at the time we spoke, your new book, your 15th book, A Team for America, had just been released. So, so the first question I need to ask is, what is the secret to your productivity? What, what process or what tips can you offer for, for researching and writing and finishing books? Well, that's a good question. I guess number one is... Pick subjects that you're really, really interested in. 
Uh, number two is get your kids graduated from college. Uh, suddenly they're out on their own, and I have a lot more time. And so this is this is what I do for my job, but it's also what I do for fun. It's what I do, you know, when I'm writing a book every single day. It's the ability to to sit down and to you know plat your butt on the gra- on a seat and just write. So something I appreciate in your writing is that that you really capture the atmosphere of the times, what people were wearing, what they were buying, what was on the on the radio. And and I can say from experience as a historian that this kind of history writing isn't easy. It sounds easy, but I know that it's not. So so when you're doing your research, what do you keep an eye out for? What are you uh, what kinds of source materials are are you looking for to get an idea of the sights and the sounds of a historical period? Well, I look for some different things than, say, you would receive in your training as a historian. Uh, you know, I'm always interested in uh, who attended an event, for example. If there's, I go to society pages to find out what they were wearing. I'm certainly interested in the weather. What was the weather like? I'm interested in what else was going on in that day. So when, I, when I'm dealing with Army football, and let's say I take a newspaper, I just don't go to the newspaper and look at sports sections. I'm looking at the front pages, you know, what, what are the headlines of the day? I'm looking at the weather report for the day. I'm looking at, you know, what's happening with the stock market. Just to pull out as much information that doesn't seem to be related to my particular topic, but when you try to describe an event, when you try to describe a day or the mood of a time, uh, it all kind of, it gives me a lot of choices to use. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting of what you said about going to the society pages. I would have never thought of that. Yeah, oftentimes you get great stuff on society pages. Yeah. So when you're writing about the actual sports events, what is your your principal source? Is it the the newspaper accounts, or do you find are you able to find films of the games? I yes, I did. Now not all the games, but I you know interestingly enough for the biggest game for the Army Navy game, I had both the Navy film of the game and the Army film of oh, the okay. game, West Point and Annapolis. And it was slightly different. I mean, it's not the score wasn't different, but the, there was a slight difference in the film. So sometimes, if I'm lucky, I can get films. And there were a few games that I was able to get films. For most of the games, I rely on newspapers and I rely on the players that played in it. So let me ask you about that. In interviewing players, and you know this as a historian, that... Uh, uh, the eyewitness accounts of of people who were there don't always match up with, say, objective evidence, say, a, a, a film uh, of the game. Do you did you find any incongruities between players' memories of the game and what you saw in films? You always find some, and you double check. Though what I found with West Point guys, it was very interesting. Is if they didn't remember. They didn't make it up. Huh. And and if they, sometimes every once in a while they would say to me, Sheena, I, this is how I remember this, but I've told this story a lot over the years, and you better double-check me on it. And I remember hearing one story Doug Kenna told me, and it was of a guy. At the, Blake had told his team, do not score another touchdown. 
he didn't want to. I mean, the game was already about seventy to nothing. Blake said, "Do not. Nobody scores." And uh, and Doug Kennett said about that time a fourth stringer got in and he intercepted a ball. And Doug said, you know, he started running down the field full speed. And when he hit about the ten, suddenly what Blake <laughs> said came to him and he slowed down. And then about the five, he's at walks. And then at the one yard line, he stops and puts the ball down on the one yard line. And doesn't go in. And you know, I, I thought, oh, that's a wonderful story. But it can't be true. There's no way it can be true. I found confirmation that the story was literally absolutely true. Oh, they really? talked about this guy uh, putting the ball down on the one-yard line. So sometimes and it, a story to me sounds improbable, turns out to be true. Huh. But I checked it out. So you've written about football. You've written books about boxing. What is What is more challenging to you as a writer, to recapture the action of a boxing match from decades ago, or a football game? Football's more complex. Uh, boxing, you, you're looking at the actions of two individuals, and, and, and the dynamics of boxing's a little bit easier because it's so focused, it's so telescoped. Uh, football, you're looking at what 22 people are doing, not that you describe the actions of 22 people, but the, it's, it's a bigger field, it's a little bit more complex, it's a little bit more subtle, it's easier to miss things. Uh, sports writers miss things. Mm -hmm. I, there was a great, a great example of this. Is the same thing Doug Kenna told me. Uh, the first game, uh, excuse me, the, the first big win over Notre Dame. Doug scored the first touchdown, and it was on a busted play. He went the wrong way, and it looked like, and he went in, and it, it, he came to the sidelines. And Blake said, "What were you thinking about?" Blake was upset. If you look at the newspaper reports, they talk about Doug Kenna scored on a marvelously conceived play full of fakes. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, they they totally missed what happened. Mm -hmm. So let's turn to the book, and uh, I'll ask you what what led you to this particular topic: the Army Navy football game of 1944. The biggest class I teach at Purdue University, and sometimes upwards to about 500 students, is on World War II. And, you know, I love teaching the course, and it's a kind of a traditional World War II class. I do most of the campaigns like other people would. But on this one, what I decided to do, I mean, one time when I was studying World War II, I noticed that in 1944, Army won the national championship. And it, this was a number of years ago, and I thought, you know, that could be an interesting book. I could interview players, a number of them would still be around. Uh, they would have had classmates that graduated in the class of 44, the class of 43, even the class of 42, who had gone on and were serving in World War II. And I thought this would be an interesting way of going back and forth between the battlefront and the home front. Mm -hmm. you know, looking at, at, at soldiers, cadets, training to be soldiers, training to go to war, but they're still playing a game. And looking at soldiers, looking back at the game they played. So I, I, in the back of my mind, when I saw that story that they had won, I thought there's got to be a great game. How was football kept alive in World War II? You would have thought that every red-blooded American boy who could have been playing football would have been toting a, you know, an M1 out on the on the battlefield. So it started with that idea. Mm -hmm. So the book focuses on the Army teams of the war years, and it builds to the Army-Navy game of 1944. And can you tell us why 
the Army-Navy game had such a significant place in American culture, not just during the war, but throughout the mid-20th century? Well, for a lot of those years, Army and either Army or Navy was a really good team. I mean, a national caliber team. They played Notre Dame. They played other great teams, Michigan. And so, number one, you had a game of, of players that were much better than they are today, I mean, in terms of the, the ranking of the teams. Um, also, you know, this is right after World War One. Army and Navy were really important to America. Life magazine and the other popular magazines covered the cadets extraordinarily. Uh, they, you know, they, they went to the cotillions. They covered them at dances. They, you know, they were... The cadets were on the American mind more than they are today. Uh, war was on Americans' mind more than they were today. I mean, this is a period of time that's framed by wars. And when you're at, in a war, cadets and midshipmen seem even more important to the, to the future of the country. So these games were enormous. I mean, they were played in, in big venues. They were attended by celebrities. The president or a representative of the president would go. This didn't happen in other games, but every game. And the tradition was the president or oftentimes Eleanor Roosevelt would stay in Franklin's dead. They would sit the first half on one side, the second half on the other side. There were such elaborate rituals that were involved in this game. I want to pick up with something you, you just said, and you, you mentioned this in, in the close of your book, in your acknowledgments at the end of the book, uh, how you said that, that at that time, after World War I, leading up to World War II, um, there, was a, there was a much greater sense of the, the importance of the Army and Navy in the United States. And yet, and you talk about this in the book, today the United States is at war, and and I'll, just, I'll I'll ask you what is the difference between the the place of the military in American culture and American sporting culture today, as opposed to the twenties, thirties, and forties. Well, one is the number of Americans in uniform. You know, I mean, we're looking at a time where you had millions and millions of Americans in uniform during World War Two. Uh, every family had a you know, they knew a, had a son, uh, sometimes a daughter, but a, a cousin, a nephew, a father. A, you know, there, there's so many people in the, in the military, so many more. The actions of the military in World War II were so much clearer. Families would put up maps on the walls. They would, with pins, they would follow the course of our army or our navy across the Pacific or across Europe. Uh, generals were heroes. You know, they followed Patton, they followed MacArthur, they followed Eisenhower and Bradley and the other generals that today we may not be real familiar with them, but people were familiar with them in the, in the 1940s. Uh, today, there's a muddiness, there's a complexity. You can't follow the movements on maps. You're not even really sure what the goal is. And so I think the clarity of World War II, and even World War I, was something that we, we don't live with today in a time of limited wars. Mm -hmm. So one thing that struck me from the start of the book is that uh, even though 
college football was hugely popular as it is today, college football of the 1940s was something of a completely different world. Right. Right. Number one is players went both ways. They played offense and they played defense. You know, when you picked an All-American team at the end of the year, Mm -hmm. the first team All-American, there were only 11 players on it. Uh, because on that team would have been a kicker, There's, you know, they would a, a person who may have been a halfback or a tailback was also a punter or a place kicker. As a matter of fact, in that Army Navy game, seven out of the eleven first team All Americans played in that Army Navy game. Secondly, you have players that had more limited equipment on. They didn't have face masks. Their helmets were not the type of helmet that they have today. Uh, it was a, it, the referees didn't call the games as closely. It, players uh, watching films, I'm, I'm always struck at how often players were offside. It really wasn't important, and they, don't call, they didn't call it. Uh, roughing, you know, they're, they're, they're very loose in interpretations of roughing penalties. I mean, people were punching and slugging all the time. You almost had to have a brawl before they would start fr- throwing the flag. So it was. It was a very different game. But yet, it was the same game, too. The strategy was slightly different. The formations were different. Football is a continually evolving game, offenses versus defenses. But yet, anybody watching the game would recognize, oh, yeah, that's football. The ball was shaped a little bit different. It was a little harder to pass. It was a bit harder to catch. Um, And you you certainly note that. Mm Mm-hmm. I was thinking in particular of the, uh, you know, kind of the underlying values of, of college sports in the 1940s. And, and a story that brought that out in particular was the, the Cornell-Dartmouth game in 1940 that you talk about. Absolutely. Here's a game. Cornell is one of the best teams in the nation. Undefeated, had started the nation, ranked number one in the nation, which tells you how, how different the world was. This is when the Ivy League schools could be still, you know, lead be one of the best teams in the nations, but they were playing against Dartmouth, and Dartmouth had had a bad year, and Dartmouth was in some close games they lost anyway. It was raining, the weather was abysmal, Blake, Earl Red Blake, figured out a great plan to play, and and his team finally kicked the field goal and appeared to be on the way to winning the game, but in the last drive, Cornell marches down the field, ends up on fourth down, throws a ball incomplete, the drives end. But then suddenly the referees and and the Cornell players say, no, we have another down. The referee gets confused, and he gives Cornell another down. Cornell on this down scores and wins the game. Well, there's big controversy. Did they have an extra down or didn't they? People were confused. There was a penalty called. Nobody was sure. But they looked at the tapes, and sure enough, Cornell got an extra down. As soon as this happened, the president of Cornell University vacated the game. You know, gave it to, said, look, we do not want to win like this. This isn't what college football is about. This isn't the values we're trying to inculcate. It's your game. They vacated the game. Uh, they forfeited the game. I mean, would this ha- we have we've had mm-hmm. events like this in our lifetime, and they haven't ended the same way. It's sort of like, well, too bad. You know, we got lucky. We got that extra down. 
it's our victory. Yeah, yeah. If you get away with it. Yep, you get away with it, It's a, you, you get to keep it. Yeah. No, at that time, there was a right, there was a wrong. And, and, and the Cornell coach and the Cornell president did not want to win the wrong way. So you've mentioned already uh, Red Blake, who uh, was the coach at Army in the 1940s and into the 1950s, and he's one of the principal figures in, in your book. So can you give us an introduction to him? Sure. Red Blake, uh, you know, one of the people I interviewed said Red Blake, the first thing you got to understand about Red Blake is he didn't have a shred of an iota of a sense of humor. <laughs> Red Blake was a humorless coach who cared. He was a passionate coach. It's all he cared about. He would wake up in the middle of the night and he would call one of his assistant coaches and say, look, meet me at my office. I want to go over something. He coached. He thought about it constantly. He had a son, Robert Blake, very good football player. When they were at West Point, Robert played his high school football at West Point. He was a starting quarterback. And his entire son's entire high school call, uh, high school career, Red Blake saw him play only one half of one quarter. That's, that's all the time he had to go see his son play. Can you imagine that? I mean, didn't even see him play a whole game, just one half of one quarter in three years. Um, so this is a, a guy that's single-minded. He's brought back to West Point for a purpose. In 1940, West Point was terrible. Uh, the new superintendent said, a guy by the name of Robert Eichelberger said, there's a war coming. We cannot have West Point represented on the football field by a bunch of losers. The cadets, the Army, deserve more than that. So Blake, you know, he, he has a mission, and he comes back to fulfill that mission. So this is a single-minded character, <laughs> no sense of humor, but his, his players loved him. I mean, he, you know, they, they, they had tremendous respect for the man. He's still a polarizing figure at West Point. Some people feel that West Point, that he was a great coach, which everybody recognizes, and he brought great glory to West Point. Other people at West Point today tend to emphasize the cribbing scandal that occurred in the early 1950s. So can you talk about that? Because that's not something that, that you discuss in the book. Well, I don't, I don't deal a lot with that, but in, at West Point in 50-51, uh, there was a, what we would call a cheating scandal. West Point, if you're a cadet, all the cadets of all classes, they would take the same courses. Uh, and they would be taught the same thing in their courses, and they would be tested, but they're on an honor system. So some people would receive the test on Monday afternoon or Monday morning. Other people would receive it maybe Tuesday. And what was happening is the people that were receiving the test first was giving the test, not necessarily the answers, but the test to to other cadets. Uh, and when this was found out, you know, the cadet code is, I will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate anybody that did that does, um, uh, it ended up in a dismissal of about 200 cadets from the institution. So it was a, it was a scandal that shocked the, the, rocked the academy and really rocked America during the Korean War. So going back to this, this portrait you give of Blake and talking about him as a, a single-minded, humorless coach, and, and we've got plenty of examples today in American football of, of single-minded, driven, humorless coaches. I would think of Bill Belichick in the, in the NFL and Nick Saban in college football. So what would distinguish Blake from those contemporary coaches? Well, probably nothing. 
Blake is almost the grandfather of those contemporary coaches. Blake, for example, is the guy that pioneered the use of film. Mm -hmm. One of Blake's assistants in the early 50s was Vince Lombardi. Everything Lombardi learned, he learned most of it was from Blake. So when you think of Lombardi, you're really thinking of Red Blake. And when you think of Lombardi, you're thinking about the Balachek's and the player and the coaches of today. So in some ways, Blake was, like I said, the first of a breed of coaches that were going to follow. Mm-hmm. That you know, you plot out everything. You watch. You 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 film everything. You watch the films. You look for tendencies. You you just really intellectualize the game as much as possible. So going back into his his career, uh, Blake was a student at West Point, and one of his strongest advocates from the time he was a student and, and really throughout his coaching career was Douglas MacArthur. And something you talk about in the book, uh, looking at MacArthur's relationship to Blake, is how MacArthur saw sports as fundamentally important for the training of a young officer. That's right. MacArthur, when Blake was a, when Blake was a cadet, uh, he was he was in a shortened World War One cadet. The superintendent, right after the war, this was when the war ended. The superintendent was Douglas MacArthur. So. And Blake was one of the star athletes, and he became close to MacArthur. And MacArthur and Blake, Blake would write during World War II long letters to MacArthur about the games and about the seasons. And MacArthur loved these letters. And even afterwards, when MacArthur retired from the military and moved into the Waldorf Towers, MacArthur, there would be a cadet sent, uh, a coach sent to MacArthur every week to show him films and explain what they did. So MacArthur took an inordinate interest in it. MacArthur believed that you needed to train cadets to win. The competitive edge was important. You know, he really liked cadets that had that had football careers or sports careers. If, if, if you had had a sports career, it helped you if, if, if you were serving under MacArthur. So Blake arrives at West Point in 1941, as you said, to, to rebuild the Army football team. And in his first season, the team finished with a record of five wins, three losses, and, and one tie, which actually could be called a, a good tie because it was against Notre Dame, one of the, the best teams at the time. But the season ended with a loss to Navy. And as you write in the book, Blake recognized that that if he was going to beat Navy, which is the aim for any Army football coach, he needed to recruit some some better players. So before we talk about the players he found, I want to ask about recruiting a half century ago. Uh, so what what drew outstanding athletes to Army and Navy? And and I ask this because right now the service academies no longer draw the best high school athletes in the country. They go to places like LSU and Alabama and, and Ohio State. What, how, did, how did Army and Navy bring in these, these top high school athletes? Well, several ways. Number one, of course, it was a great institution, and you received a great education. And Army and Navy, this is a time when Army and Navy were really national institutions in a way that most other institutions weren't. 
if you looked at the University of Alabama, they may have had a great football team, but they probably every player on the team would have been from the from the state of Alabama, and this would have been true with other schools. You know, Notre Dame a little bit more national, but Army and Navy were were national. Number two is we're in a war. Uh, players want to train to be uh, they want to train to be servicemen, either either in the Navy or the Army, and this is the best place to receive that training. Now, there are other programs, V-12 programs, V-5 programs, that gave you training at other schools, you know, ROTC-type programs, we would call them today, but not like you were going to get at West Point. Number three is there was real no, really no professional football to speak of. I mean, for, there was professional football, but it was nothing like it is today. Players Good football players didn't really think about, you know, making a career of football. They didn't think of going into professional football. You went in, you played college, and then you went into the real world. Uh, you know, the mega millions of dollars, you didn't get rich playing football. And so the lore of professional football, which we have today, and that's what really hurts the academies today, is that it's that commitment that you were that you have to your service after you graduate that renders professional football a bit more problematic. It didn't really exist at that time. So, of course, the United States enters World War II just after Blake's first season. And uh, something you discuss throughout the book, and you've already mentioned it at the start of the interview, is this debate within the military and within the government as to whether sports, both college and professional sports, should continue during the war. And, and they do continue. Uh, why do they continue? Why did the, the government and the military allow, say, college football to go on? Well, that was interesting. I mean, the question was, should it go on? And it really boils down to, I mean, it could have gone either way. The Army and Army training programs, Army specialized training programs that were set up in several hundred college campuses across America did not allow their trainees to play varsity sports. The Navy did. And the Navy in such programs is a V-5 program to train Navy pilots, and the V-12, much bigger V-12 programs to train Navy officers and, and Navy uh, and Marine officers, allowed their cadets in those programs to play football. And, and really, it's those programs that keep the sport alive. If you had an Army specialized training program, as many schools did, a lot of schools just simply discontinued football. You know, Alabama didn't play football for a few years. Virginia Tech didn't play football for a few years. A number of schools just discontinued it. The schools that were the best were the ones with the V-12 programs, particularly V-12 Marine programs. In 1943, Purdue University, uh, you know, Purdue is an interesting story. In 1942, they had... They have in '43. They have one returning letterman from their '42 team, and their '42 team was terrible. But they got all of these Z12 transfers to the university from Illinois and from Iowa and from Missouri and from other schools. They went undefeated in '43. Uh, it's really a remarkable story. Uh, Notre Dame had a great V12, biggest V12 Marine program in the country. They won a national championship in '43. But the school that really benefited from the shakeup of, of, of the wartime 
football personnel was Army and Navy. So one of the other changes in college football that you discussed was uh, an innovation in offenses, and this gets us back to uh, to Red Blake looking at film and, and thinking intellectually about the game. So what was the, the old system, and what was the new system that, that Blake adopted for his Army teams? Blake will adopt the split T. Uh, the, the, the classic system in college football in the 30s at 20s and 30s was really a single wing, where a ball was snapped directly back to a, a, a single wing, what was called a single wing, uh, running back, um, tailback, behind the center, like four yards, stationed four yards behind the center. So it's like a short, what we would call a short punt or a shotgun today. Um, and then that person would either, he could kick, he could pass, he could run, there was deceptions, you had an unbalanced line. Well, a coach by the name of Shaughnessy out at Stanford back in the early 40s uh, introduced this new single wing with a quarterback directly behind the center taking the snap, and it was a very deceptive offense. It was an offense that emphasized speed. It, it was an offense that emphasized technique. It was an offense that emphasized really very coordinated movements between players. And Blake realized that this was an offense that really benefited West Point, that wasn't the biggest team in the nation, but they were disciplined and they were fast. And that's the, that's the offense that he will win the national championship with. So he adopts this new offense, and then in 1943, he gains an outstanding first-year player for that offense. So can you give us a sketch of, of this player, of, of Glenn Davis? Sure. Uh, coming from California, a guy by the name of Glenn Davis, who was just an unbelievable athlete. Uh, you know, He took a physical fitness exam to go to West Point. He just scored off the chart. Nobody was even close to him. Glenn Davis was, you know, one. I remember a, a football coach, a guy played with Glenn Davis, a guy by the name of Bill Yeoman, later coached at the University of Houston. He played with Davis and Blanchard. And Yeoman said, you know, there are words to describe how great of a football player uh, Doc Blanchard was. There's no words to describe how great Glenn Davis was. I mean, he was just the fastest player. He could shift speeds. Doug Kenneth said he had four or five gears that nobody else had. He was just a, a, a fabulous athlete. Could have played professional baseball. I mean, he was just an enormously talented athlete. So today in college sports, it's not unusual to have a, a first-year player be a standout, and even in in a few cases, lead a team to a national championship. But this was this was quite remarkable in Davis's day. Well, yeah, they, the eligibility rules, of course, were dropped, so you could play your freshman year. Now, the West Point also went; they graduated earlier, so they went from a four-year curriculum to a three-year curriculum. So you, the emphasis was to play right on right from the beginning. Now, most of the West Point players had either gone to prep school or had played at another school before they got to West Point. But Glenn Davis was a true freshman, what we would call today a true, true freshman, when he started to play. Of course, he was a plebe at West Point. So, and I was going to ask about that because he didn't, he didn't have trouble with the transition from high school to college football. He, he did have trouble, though, from the, with the transition to academics at the academy. He did. He did. He had a lot of trouble. 
most people that went to the academy would have training before they got there. Uh, you know, they would spend a year in prep school or maybe a year at another institution, but they would have some what we would call academic conditioning before they got there because it was a demanding it was demanding science and math, particularly math curriculum. Uh, and Glenn had a lot of trouble with it. He, he busted out. He flunked out after his, uh, uh, you know, second semester. He, he, so he had to be readmitted and go to a plebe year a second time. You know, at West Point, it wasn't – if you failed a course, you, just, you didn't have to take just that course over again. If you busted out, you had to take the entire curriculum over again. So he did come But back. he came back, and he'll eventually graduate. So I was going to say, so he came back from 1944, and uh, and with the football season in 1944, he gets his, his new partner in the backfield, and you had mentioned already Doc Blanchard. So can you give us an introduction to him? Yeah, Doc Blanchard had played freshman football at the University of North Carolina, and then he had, then he had gone into the service, and he had spent a year in the service, and then he was brought in to West Point. He was... This was Mr. Inside, Mr. Outside. Davis was Mr. Outside. Blanchard was a big, rugged, fullback, linebacker. Maybe better on defense than he was on offense, and he was superb on offense. Both of them will win Heisman Trophy awards, but he was just a bruiser. Uh, when Notre Dame scouted West Point, the scout wired back to Notre Dame, said, I've just seen Superman in, in the flesh. He wears number 35, and he goes by the name of Felix Doc Blanchard. Just big, powerful, tough. So these two, Davis and Blanchard, these are iconic names in the history of college football. Can you give us an idea when they, when they do start playing at Army together in 1944, just just how good were they? <laughs> they, were, they were the best. Take a look at the at the records. In 1944, their first year together, Army went undefeated nine and no, nine and zero. 1945, they were undefeated again nine and zero. 1946, their last year together, Army was nine and one, nine zero and one. So uh, they had a zero zero tie with Notre Dame. So in three years that they played together, Army didn't lose a football game. They won every one except for one that was tied. And they were that pretty, pretty much says, and they, you know, one win. They both will win Heisman trophies. And these weren't uh, uh, these weren't narrow victories, at, at least in 1944. Oh, they were in 1944. They won games 69 nothing. You know, 62 seven. Uh, you know, 69 seven. I mean, just enormous scores. Now, the thing that was interesting is that. Uh, um, Davis and Blanchard were also were also media celebrities in their day, right? You know, because there was so much attention on West Point. I mean, there's, you know, there's so many American men in, in uniform. So yeah, they were. Davis dated Elizabeth Taylor. You don't get much more media <laughs> than if you're dating Elizabeth Taylor. So how did that happen? Well, they met. He's from California, Davis, and they met and they dated for a while. He'll he'll later marry another movie star. He's a yeah, you know, he was a good-looking guy. He was he was everybody's all-American. They're both all-Americans. I mean, they're just yeah, everybody in the nation knew who Glenn Davis and Doc Blanchard were. They were on the cover of Time magazine, Life magazine, you name it. And they even made a a, a movie together. They did. They did. At the end of their career, 
they made a movie together. And here's the, the sad thing about that is while filming that film, they were, they were showing them running, you know, so doing some play for the movie, and Doc Blanchard ripped up his knee. And not Doc, excuse me, Glenn Davis ripped up his knee, and he was never the same. He'll play some professional football, but the Glenn Davis of his college career ended during the filming of that movie when he destroyed his knee. And that, back at that time, if you really ripped up your knee, there wasn't a whole lot that doctors could do about it. But Blanchard didn't play professional football, correct? Nope. Blanchard went into military, became a career military, retired from the military after, you know, 30 years or 25 years, and whatever so, it was. And so that was his choice. He just had wanted, wanted to stick with the military as opposed to... Yeah, the, stayed in the military. But again, remember, we're dealing back in the pro football... It wasn't until that New York Baltimore Colt game that pro the pro football really comes on the radar for most Americans, and so still pro football wasn't that big of a deal in the end of the 1940s and early 1950s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I don't want to go into detail about the the games of that 1944 season, although you just rattled off a few of the the lopsided scores. But I want to ask about the teams, the Army teams' significance, and and first I want to ask about the broader mood of the United States in 1944. And uh, uh, I think that now, when we, and and I'd say especially our students, look back at U.S. involvement in the war, and certainly in 1944, we have this sense of inevitable victory. We we know that by fall 1944, victory in Europe is is only months away. But but when you look at the historical source, when you look at materials from the fall of 1944, what was the mood in the country? What was the sense of the war at the time? The mood in in the fall of 44, let's let's divide it between the early and the later fall of 44 because I think there is a division. In the early fall, it seemed like the war was almost over. You know, you had in in June of 44, you had D-Day. Okay, we're on the beaches. Then suddenly a month later, we're breaking out. And, and then, by September, we are on the move. You know, Belgium and Holland and, you know, our armies, Patton is just swinging wide. Liber- August, the liberation of Paris. It seemed like Nazi empire was crumbling. So there was a, a buoyant mood. There was relaxation of, of rationing in, in, in the early fall. It's because the feeling was it was almost over. But then everything sort of changed. We had Operation Market Garden to jump us over the Rhine, and that fails. And then, of course, in the winter, we're going to have, uh, we'll eventually have the Battle of the Bulge. But so there's this sense that, oh, the war's going to be over. The boys will be home by Christmas. Uh, buoyant mood to suddenly, oh, geez, it's, it's not, we're going to win, but it's going to last much longer than we thought it was going to last. And we see this in the football season, certainly by November. By, by Thanksgiving, and you were talking about the big games or the late November game against uh, Notre Dame and then the early December game against Navy, you know, there's a sense that, you know, the war is really still going on, and this game, more than ever, 
the soldiers need because America's tired of the war. You know, we're ready for it to be over. I think of the great movie, and again, I look at what movies are playing, but the great movie coming out in that November of 44 was Meet Me at St. Louis with, with, with uh, Judy Garland singing Have Yourself, What is a Merry Little Christmas, uh, and she's talking about, you know, have yourself a merry little Christmas, you know, and maybe next year we'll all be together. Maybe next year, you know, but it's almost a, a party of, for next year. Everything isn't okay now. Everything isn't all right. Uh, this is about a family that's being broken apart or seemingly broken apart. They're going to move from St. Louis to New York. It doesn't have anything to do with the war, but it has everything to do with the war. And this is the mood of America, this sense of despair almost. We're going to win. But, my goodness, how many people are going to die before it happens? Will there be a reunion next year? Mm -hmm. The back cover of the book features a, a reproduction of a, of a telegram that MacArthur sent to Red Blake after Army did defeat Navy in 1944. And what did, what did Army's success that season mean to soldiers who were serving overseas? It meant a great deal. You know, I don't want to say... Football is what Amer is what the soldiers were fighting for, but it was something close to that. You know, this was a citizen soldiers. They had been drafted. They had enlisted. They weren't career soldiers. They went overseas. They did their part, and what they wanted more than anything else was to get back home in one piece and to continue their lives. You know, they weren't in military careers like some of the officers or generals were. Football represented a slice of that life that they wanted to get home to. You know, the thud of a foot on a football on a fall afternoon with the smell of leaves and the color of fall. That's what they wanted to return to. And I'm sure, as this game, the millions of people that listen to this game worldwide, and this is a game that was through shortwave radio, was listened to in late golf, it was listened to in Bastogne. And, and, and the front in Belgium, it was listened to in North Africa and, and, and Asia, that they were dreaming. I mean, this is a game played by the Army-Navy game, played by cadets and midshipmen training to be military officers and listened to by hard-bitten military off, uh, milit soldiers and sailors wishing they were back home again. So this was, again, that slice of America that they wanted back. Randy, this is a theme you develop throughout the, the book, uh, and, and you don't overplay it. You, you, you really do this well, but you do talk about this connection of football and war. And, and we've already discussed how, how MacArthur saw football as a preparation for young officers. And, and we know that coaches speak of football in the language of war, and that officers speak of war in the language of football. And, and I want to ask you, I'm reading another book for the, for the podcast, A History of College Football, and I came across a quotation from the, from the 1920s, and it's not somebody uh, involved in the military. It's actually a, a university of president who makes the comment that in the 1920s, the popularity of football in America is derived from its connection to combat. And, and I want to ask you about that even today. Do you, do you see, is part of what, uh, drives this American love of football is its connection to to war. 
It's a good question. You know, and the simple answer is, oh, yes. And we can talk about, you know, blitzes and linebacker blitzes and movements, uh, you know, uh, bombs, uh, quarterbacks throwing bombs. And, 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 and I have, in my book, I talk about Patton talking about this and Eisenhower comparing the two. And there are some similarities. But I wouldn't, I personally think, you can't take it too far because football is not war. People are not being killed in football. Well, early in the 20th century, some were, but you know, it's 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 rarity. Um, and and people are shaking hands at the end of games. And 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 ultimately, football is a sport. It's a very disciplined sport, and war is a very disciplined activity. Football can be a violent sport, and certainly war is a violent activity. But fundamentally, they're different. One is deadly serious. The other is a game. At the end of the Army-Navy games, the Army-Navy, the cadets and the midshipmen come together to the middle of the field. They shake hands. They hug. They listen to the to the alma maters of both schools. They cheer both schools. There's a, there's a camaraderie that doesn't exist in war. So at the end of your book, Randy, you describe what happened to the various players and, and coaches uh, you describe in the book af- after their time at Army. Uh, but I want to ask you what happens to Army football. And uh, so this is, the, this is the high point in the history of Army football. Last year, Army's record was 3-9. and nine. So, so what brought the decline of, of football at Army and, and at Navy? Well, several things. Uh, Army will continue to be good all the way until Blake, until Blake retires. Uh, you know, Blake's last year at Army was in 1958, and they're 8-0-1 in 58. Um, and then what happens is there sort of is a de-emphasizing of football. Some people felt that the academy gave too much of themselves to have a great football team, which meant you know that they were recruiting football players instead of cadets, okay, instead of army officers. As you like, I said, Blake is a polarizing figure. He's still a polarizing figure to this day at West Point. You get you want to get in an argument one way or the other, start talking about Red Blake. So the academy decided they want the academies that they wanted to de-emphasize sports. Uh, second thing that happens is Vietnam, you know, coming sort of right after Red Blake retires. And you have Vietnam, and it, it was hard for the academies to recruit uh, cadets during Vietnam. This was kind of a low point of an of a American view of the military. And then added on to that you have, which we've talked about earlier, is the professionalization of football, where the greatest players really – saw college as a stepping stone into the professional ranks, into a career, into wealth. Uh, and the academies can't offer you that. All, what the academies offer you is a free education, but you're going to be tied up with them for five years afterwards. So a combination of those factors. The only way Army was able to build a great team in the 40s is to have everybody marching to the same drummer. That that went from the superintendent, Eichelberger, and then Wilby, 
to the coach Blake, to the to the professors, to everybody was committed to building a great program. And you can't have a great program unless you have that commitment at all levels. And certainly West Point doesn't have that commitment today. They have a commitment to do something else, to train a certain type of uh, officer. And they do it extraordinarily well. Randy, when you go to a football game today as a, as a historian, do you feel a, a sense of loss at knowing what college football used to be, or, or do you still see something good and encouraging at the, at the heart of college football? Oh, I guess I feel a little bit of a loss. Um, I feel a today maybe a little bit of a disconnect between the athletes on the field and the students cheering for them in the stands. I mean, I love college football. Don't get me wrong. I, mean, mm-hmm. I, just, I just love it. But a little bit. I, and and maybe, maybe, um, maybe if I was back in the 40s, I would say it. Certainly, West Point in World War II, they had some guys on the team that shouldn't have been academically on the team. I mean, they had guys like Barney Pohl and Tex Calder who will later, you know, kind of flunk out of the academy. They're great guys, funny guys. I love two of the guys that I love the most talking about in my book, but scholars they weren't. Um, and, you know, today there's so many you know the scandals and maybe it's a 24-hour news maybe if we had a 24 hours you know news cycle back at that time there'd be more scandals though i don't think so it's just there's things that happen today that uh, i'm you know i'm sad for you know i miss the 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 doc you know where have you gone joe dimaggio okay where have you gone glenn davis you know these were some kind of, you know, they were exceptional, exceptional people. They may not have been the best students in the world, but they tried. They worked. They graduated. They, you know, they, their heart was in the right place. Um, I talk about one guy from the earlier years, Robin Olds, who was a great football player at West Point, will go on to become one of America's greatest fighter, fighter pilots and will become a general in the, in the Air Corps and in the, in the Air Force, uh, you know. These are pretty exceptional people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we're almost out of time, Randy, and uh, so it's been, it's been four months since we last spoke, and and surely in that time you've got another manuscript ready to send off, right? What are you what are you working on now? Well, I've got a short little book coming out uh, on on John Wayne in the fall, and I'd written a long biography of John Wayne, so I'd done one of these that's of a coffee table variety that though i'm really proud of the book it's great but the book i'm working on now that i'm really excited about is i'm working on a a book on alabama football in the in the 60s in the early 60s and um you know with bear bryant and joe namath and uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that so you're an lsu grad how how is it that you're writing about alabama football well um I, again, I look for the story. You know, I'm not writing a book about my favorite team. I'm writing a book about a story that I think is a, a story that I want to tell, a story that I find utterly compelling. And you don't have to cringe when you're writing it? or No, I don't have to cringe. I, you know, it, it, involves, it involves some really interesting things. And, uh, you know, I'm, 
for an LSU fan to say that he's starting to root for Alabama uh, is, is saying a lot, though Alabama just beat us for the national championship last year, and it certainly hurt, but boy, did they beat us. I did, at the end of the game, I didn't feel like, oh, we were very close to winning. It was a, it was a blowout. Okay. Well, Randy, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. I've enjoyed it immensely. You've been listening to an interview with Randy Roberts about his book, A Team for America, The Army-Navy Game That Rallied a Nation, published in 2011 by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from terrorism and organized crime to science and technology. If you like what you heard here, please friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can give us feedback and find daily links to thoughtful, shorter sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. Thank you.